being a pastor, I find myself around people a lot. And being a husband and a father of three children who are 11 and younger, there is always something going on in the Boylston household that keeps us busy. And yet at the same time, there is always something going on in our lives that in one way or another keeps us waiting. But I don't know very many people, including myself, who are naturally good at waiting. Do you? Would you consider yourself someone who is good at waiting? Maybe you can relate with some of these examples of the painful nagging we experience in waiting. Waiting at the doctor's office. Waiting in the airport after a delayed flight. Waiting to get over a lingering and nagging cold. Waiting in line at Silver Dollar City. Waiting in line at the Sonic drive-thru. Waiting on selling your house. Waiting to buy your next house. Waiting for your wife to get ready so you can head out the door. Waiting on your husband to get with it and finally figure you out. Waiting on your boyfriend to finally propose. Waiting and wondering if marriage is even in the cards for your life. Waiting to hear back from your friend after you text message them that personal question. Waiting on an employer to call you back to let you know whether or not you got the job. Waiting to find out if the surgery went okay. Waiting to find out if the cancer came back. Waiting for your prodigal child to stop running from the Lord. Waiting for your opponents to repent and obey the Lord. Waiting on the Lord during a season of grieving and loss. Waiting on the Lord during a season of discontentment and loneliness. Waiting on Jesus to lead you out of a dying or toxic church. Waiting on Jesus to lead you to a vibrant and healthy church. Waiting for Jesus to finally come back and make all things new. Waiting on Jesus to finally say to you, your work here on earth is finished. It's time to take you home. Waiting. 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 Beloved, how are you doing at waiting lately? I would imagine that if we were all to take up all our prayer requests, like really think about it for a whole day, and we all put our prayer requests in a one gigantic basket, I would imagine we would pull out slips of paper that said something like this. Pray for me to have patience at work. Pray for me to be patient with this particular person in my family. Pray for me to be patient with this particular person in my church. Pray that I be patient in waiting on God's timing to meet that special someone. Pray that I be patient and content in Christ, even in my present undesirable circumstance. And I think we find ourselves praying for things like contentment and patience 
Because, friends, it shows us how much we need God. God is patient. And we're not. You see, waiting tests our patience. Waiting reveals the object that's sitting on the throne of our hearts that reveal our deepest passions, that reveal our deepest heart commitments. Waiting then is like God's metal detector for us to discover what's going on in our hearts. God puts us in seasons of waiting to show us what inside our hearts we aren't trusting him for, what we've made a false security for our faith in, what we have made a God substitute, which is really an idol, right? He often keeps us in these seasons of waiting until we finally start hearing that metal detector beep rapidly and loudly on what God is showing us we need to deal with. God shows us how much we need God. God shows us how we need our patient God to make us more like him, to make us more patient. Beloved, our times and seasons of waiting, they will reveal one of two things. It will either show how much we do trust in the character and promises of God, or it will show that we have idols that our hearts are clinging to and things we're demanding of God to give us. Friends, when someone becomes a Christian, one of the first rude awakenings to our prideful flesh is realizing how impatient we are with God and how impatient we are with others. And then by his grace, one of the most humbling and joyful revelations to a growing Christian is when God shows us how unbelievably patient and kind he's been with us, even though we don't deserve it. As we read throughout the scriptures and as we walk with Jesus throughout our entire lives, we will hear time and time again those same phrases put on repeat until we reach glory with our Lord. Keep waiting on God, brother. Wait upon the Lord, sister. Be patient. Do not be weary. Do not lose heart. God is faithful. Remain prayerful. God is in control. Keep seeking the Lord. Keep Jesus as your first love and make Jesus' kingdom your first priority. And as you do so, wait upon the Lord. Brothers and sisters, here we are coming to the end of 2022. How are your New Year's resolutions coming? Or soon to be regrets? Well, as you look back on the year 2022, here's a good discussion question maybe you can have with your family and friends over the next week or so. As you look back on this year, what has God taught you about waiting upon him? What lessons has he taught you along the way? And what new lessons is he teaching you even right now about waiting upon him. Friends, when God puts people in your life to lead you and guide you, and those same people remind you to wait, 
do you? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 128. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, you can take that Bible there in the chair back as a gift from our church to you. Over the last two weeks, we've been studying this short but amazing book in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth. And just in case you haven't been here, let me give us a recap. In chapter 1, we saw a dark season of a frowning providence in the life of a woman named Naomi. In the course of 10 years, she lost her husband and her two sons in death. And no further explanation of the causes or events surrounding their death are recorded in Scripture. All we're told is that a family of six went down to a family of three in just the course of a few years. And just like all of us have to face at different points in our lives, God doesn't promise to give us all the explanations for why he does what he does in this life. Friends, when we cannot see, feel, or trace his hand, we are called to trust his character and his heart. When we cannot see or imagine his good plans that he's promised for us, we are called to trust him as he reveals those good plans in his time. And even when death, our last enemy, occurs among our loved ones, life still goes on. Life must go on, even if pain and heartache remain with us for a very long time. So by the end of chapter 1, a grieving and broken Naomi is insisting that people call her Mara, which means bitter, because she is convinced God has dealt her a bitter and hopeless hand in her life. But in chapter 1, starting in verse 16, we see that one of her daughters-in-laws, Ruth, a Moabite, resolves to stick with her and to start trusting in Naomi's God. And we learn that through Naomi's immense suffering, she's lost three of the most important men in her life. But in God's mysterious providence, the first ray of light of God's smiling face is beaming on Naomi's sad face. But Naomi can't see it, at least not yet. What is that beaming light? Well, that beaming light is that deeply committed and loyal friend who was converted into a lover of Yahweh. And that person is her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Chapter 2 then unfolds an amazing act of God's slow and steady guidance in Naomi's life. But we also see the same amazing act of God's slow and steady guidance in Ruth's life too. Last week we saw that on her own initiative... Ruth set out to work, and she just happened. Ruth 2 verse 3 says, to wind up in a man's field, working and looking for work. A man's field that belonged to a man from Bethlehem. That man's name is Boaz. Uh, Boaz is a well-respected, wealthy, generous, and valiant man of God who everyone in the town respected. Among all the young men and young women working for him in the field during the barley harvest, he discovers that a young widowed Moabite named Ruth 
has been earnest to work and to provide for her grieving and destitute mother-in-law, Naomi. In time, Boaz meets Ruth face to face. And after introducing themselves to one another and Ruth informing Naomi of Boaz's generosity, Ruth discovers that Boaz is a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. And even better than that, they discover that Boaz is a family redeemer. And according to Mosaic law, Boaz would fit the bill as an eligible bachelor to purchase or redeem Naomi's inheritance if he so chose to take that next legal step. If Boaz would choose to do that, it would provide Naomi a future and a hope, and it would provide Ruth a future and a hope. And as many of you may recall from chapter 2 last week, it was a wonderful picture of God painting on his canvas in the lives of two people he loved, two people he called to himself, and two people he brought into one another's lives, and two people that the narrator of this book has been calling our attention to focus on. We learned that we should pay attention to the valiant character of a God-fearing man in Boaz, and we should pay attention to the virtuous character of a God-fearing woman in Ruth. But as we close the chapter and we took a closer look, uh, we realized that Boaz and Ruth are not the main actors. Uh, They're just extras. There's someone greater. There's actually someone else that is the main attraction of the book of Ruth. Look with me in Ruth 2, verse 12, really quick. Ruth 2, verse 12. Here is the main attraction. Ruth 2, verse 12. The Lord, Boaz says to Ruth, repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Friends, you see that the story of the book of Ruth has been unfolding line by line and chapter by chapter, that it is God who is the main attraction in this story. Our redeeming God who gives us rest in him. And now we turn to Ruth chapter 3 to see what the Lord would continue doing in the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Ruth chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and 
turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or other poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is God's word. I have one summary statement. Can I give you one main idea? I'll repeat it three times and slowly for those of you trying to write it down. You can always re-listen to it on the podcast. Here it is. God is always working for the good of those who wait upon him. One act of obedience at a time. God is always working for the good of those who wait upon him. One act of obedience at a time. God is always working for the good of those who wait upon him one act of obedience at a time. Throughout the book of Ruth, we've been watching God at work. And we've been watching God patiently work through a host of human decisions being made one day at a time. In our passage this morning, we'll see God work in, through, and around Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And we'll see God do this in the midst of human passion, risk, and integrity-testing circumstances. So now if you're continuing to take notes, here are your three main headings that break out and flesh out the rest of the sermon. God is working through point number one, Naomi's earnest quest 
to find Ruth a home. Naomi's earnest quest to find Ruth a home. Point number two, God is working through Ruth's humble trust in Naomi's risky counsel. Ruth's humble trust in Naomi's risky counsel. Point number three, God is working through Boaz's self-restraining and redeeming love for Ruth. Boaz's self-restraining and redeeming love for Ruth. Let's look at that first point together. Naomi's earnest quest to find Ruth a home. In verse 1, we read how Naomi wants Ruth to have a stable and secure future. A stable and secure home. Look with me at verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you. That word rest there in the original language meant a settled spot to live, a resting place, or in our more common vernacular, a home. Your translation might even say, should I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you. In other words, Naomi wants to make sure that Ruth is well taken care of. The basic idea of what Naomi's quest conveys for Ruth is for Ruth to have a stable and secure future, a more permanent and established place to live other than simply living with her mother-in-law. No offense, if you live with your mother-in-law, it could be a good thing for a season, but Naomi's like, you know, long-term, as much as I love you, Ruth, as much as it's been great eating barley together and wheat and bread and, and and encouraging you every day and staying up at night and just talking about the good old days. Ruth, you got to move on. Naomi wants what's best, not just for her. She wants what's best also for Ruth. You see, back in chapter 1, Naomi wanted to be left all alone. Ruth, go back to Moab. Orpah, go back. You don't want to be around me. I'm a bitter old cat woman. No offense to cat women. I'm digging a hole. Let me get back out of it. You don't want to be around me. Leave me alone. I'm miserable to be around. God's just going to strike me down even more. You don't want my kind of luck, if you will. But now what is Naomi like? She's like a whole other woman. She's revived, she's renewed, she's replenished, she's refreshed. And what else do we find? She has a humble and earnest love to see things work well, not just for her, but also for Ruth. And her quest for Ruth, listen, it isn't out of anger or jealousy or bitterness or unbelief. No, it's really a wonderful example of faith and humility for us to take note of Naomi's humble love for Ruth to do well the rest of her life. Friends, here's a quick test on how humble or selfish you and I really are. You ready for it? Are you just as earnest to help others fulfill their ambitions in life 
as you are to fulfill your own? Are you just as earnest to help others fulfill their ambitions in life, their goals, their dreams, their desires, their plans, as much as you are to fulfill your own? Are you just as dedicated? Are you just as committed to helping others prosper in life? Helping others do well in life? Helping others grow spiritually in the Lord? Helping others achieve their goals and ambitions in their life? This includes our kids. This includes our spouses. This includes our siblings. This includes our parents. This includes even our in-laws. This includes especially church members. This even includes your pastors, whom God has put in your life to lead you that whatever God would have for our church's future. Friends, really ask yourself this question. Are you just as earnest to help others fulfill their ambitions in life as you are to fulfill your own? If we're not, why not? To this point, Dave Harvey gives us a challenging word when he writes this, quote, One great measure of our humility is whether we can be ambitious for someone else's agenda. Not just tolerate it and accommodate the goals of those over us, but adopt their vision, promote and pursue their dreams. Our willingness to make others a success is a great measure of the purity of our ambitions. Friends, isn't that just the humble attitude that Paul taught the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2? Isn't this what the message of Christmas is supposed to do to our prideful hearts? The God-man, Christ our Lord, came into the form of a baby, a weak, helpless baby, took on human flesh, lived in this fallen world, treated like the scum of the earth, goes onto a bloody cross, bearing the penalty of the sins of all of us who would trust in him. And he was raised from the dead to be the model, the example, the definition of selfless humility. Or as Paul says in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Well, here we see clearly that Naomi truly is looking out for Ruth's best interest. She wants Ruth to begin taking some initial steps, not really even baby steps, but pretty aggressive steps, towards the prospect of starting a new family again. The prospect of getting married again. So what does Naomi advise Ruth to do? Look with me at verses 2 to 4. It's not Boaz, our relative, with these young women you were. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Here we are introduced to Boaz again. Boaz and Ruth have already met, dialogued, and even noticed a time or two. 
their virtuous and valiant character qualities for quite some time. And we could assume that after Ruth had come home from being in Boaz's field for several weeks, Naomi started telling Ruth to pull up a chair. It's time to have a little heart-to-heart, sweetheart. A little woman-to-woman interaction. Those conversations probably somewhere along the way were conversations about how impressed they were with Boaz. How much they appreciated Boaz. How much they looked up to him. How much they admired him. Mary Wilson Hanna says this, it takes character to see character and admire it. It takes character to see character and admire it. And then providentially, that talk with one another brought up the discussion that Boaz was a family redeemer, a man who under the Mosaic law had the legal right to purchase the family inheritance. And on top of that, somewhere along the way, Naomi had to uh, remind Ruth, He's actually a single man who's never been married, sweetheart. Take all these factors together. Boaz was an eligible bachelor. And according to Naomi's counsel, he would be an excellent choice for a husband. So by the time Ruth 3 unfolds, Naomi believes the window of time for Ruth to make her interests known to Boaz has reached a moment of decision. In other words, Naomi is saying this, Ruth, honey, don't let a good thing pass you by. He's a diamond in the rough. He's a man's man. And more than that, he's God's man. And I don't know if you've been catching on lately, but as much barley you keep bringing back, he likes you a lot. And she says, honey, you need to go and express to him that you like him a lot. Naomi believes Boaz is the man who will provide that resting place for widowed Ruth. And Naomi then encourages Ruth, present yourself attractive, dear. You smell. You've been working in the fields for like weeks. Have you looked at yourself in the mirror? Oh, you probably haven't. We don't have any around here. She says, wash Therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak. I mean, it's just basically her way of saying, Ruth, look good and smell good. Look good and smell good. Remove those mourning garments of a widow. Remove those dirty and smelly garments of working out in the hot and dusty fields. It's time to be presentable, modest, and adorn yourself in an attractive way that shows Boaz... He's a man worthy of your attention. Let me just make a short application here to the ladies. Do not waste your time on makeup and clothing and energy on men who are not worthy to hold your heart. If they don't love and fear God now, they won't when you're married to them. You will be constantly having to raise your husband to be the man he's called to be 
Do not lower the bar. If you love the Lord, keep it up high where it belongs. And if you don't have a dad at home that modeled that for you, the elders are here not to replace your dad, but to walk alongside you to show you what you should be looking for in a young man. And friends, that's what our local church is supposed to do. This isn't supposed to be kind of the legalistic realm where we just you know, nitpick on how people are dressed and makeup and this and that, but we do need to help each other, you know? Help each other look for the right qualities in an eligible bachelor or bachelorette, if you will, and also help one another raise families that think well about dating, about physical attraction, and about marriage. Well, here we are. Through this risky, odd, and unique plan, Naomi instructs Ruth to wait for the right time to make her presence known to Boaz. Basically, prepare yourself, but you're going to have to wait on him at a particular moment in time. In verses 3 and 4, she tells Ruth to wait until Boaz had finished his work for the evening. Wait until he's fed and in bed and satisfied with his meal. And then, without anyone seeing you, walk through the night, uncover his feet, and then follow his leadership from there. What on earth is Naomi advising Ruth to do? Was Naomi taking matters into her own hands? Was she trying to manipulate the situation like an overbearing mother or mother-in-law? Was Naomi trying to be a micromanaging matchmaker for her daughter-in-law? Was she rigging Bethlehem's eHarmony dating site to force Ruth on Boaz? Or was Naomi doing like any well-meaning mom, any well-meaning mother-in-law would want for their daughter? Give them some direction. Give them some encouragement on the possibilities of really good options in front of them. To give them that gentle nudge to go in the right direction. Well, friends, at the end of the day, only God and Naomi know what Naomi's truest motives were. But either way, God is still working. He is patiently working in and through and around Naomi's quest to find Ruth a home. So what does Ruth do? Which leads to point number two. God is working through Ruth's humble trust and Naomi's risky counsel. Look now with me at verses five to nine. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. In verses 5 to 7, Ruth continues to show humble submission and trust to Naomi's leadership in her life. She does exactly what Naomi tells her to do. You see there in verses 5 and 6, all that you say I will do, and she did exactly 
what Naomi had commanded her to do. Friends, we've been seeing from the very beginning, Ruth has continued to show loyalty and friendship to Naomi. And even without a father around, keep that in mind. No father. No husband. And she's continuing to show a humble deference to Naomi's leadership. Friends, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, Ruth is already showing the fruits of an imperishable beauty, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 1 Peter 3, 4. Listen, even as a single woman, Ruth was already embodying what it means to be that virtuous woman of Proverbs 31. She's trustworthy. She's teachable. She's displaying the attitude of what we talked about last week, a happy complementarian that shows forth the fruit of God's biblical design for women, even as a single woman. Strength and dignity are Ruth's clothing. And Ruth laughs at the time to come. Ruth opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on Ruth's tongue. Ruth looks well to the ways of Naomi's household, and she does not eat the bread of idleness. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman like Ruth who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her, Ruth, of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Oh, friends, do you hear this example in Ruth? She wasn't waiting to be married to be the woman God had called her to be. She was fearing the Lord as a single widow. To all the singles here this morning, and to those who are discipling singles or parenting singles, I hear this exhortation. Don't wait to pursue godliness until after you're married. Pursue godliness right now. Don't wait to be in a committed, active, accountable member of a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church until after you're married. Do that right now. And don't wait to study God's word ferociously and fervently until after you're married. Start hiding God's word in your heart right now. If you wait to get serious about Jesus until after you're married, you're only going to be playing catch-up for years and years and years on end. Right now is the time to get serious with Jesus. And friends, there's no promise. I can never promise to a single person, marriage is in the cards for you. 1 Corinthians 7 opens the window. But that is a gift given by God to some. To my single brothers and sisters, do not waste your single years worrying about whether or not you will or will not get married. Instead, I would encourage you, and really all of us in here, whether you are married or widowed or single, listen to Marshall Seagal's timeless word of wisdom on what it means to be content and happy in God whatever circumstances you're in. Listen to what he says. Learn to love the life you have with God, even if it is the life you never wanted. Learn to love the life you have with God, even if it is the life you never wanted. 
Uh, He goes on to expand on this idea. Listen to this, quote, Our plans and dreams can become idols. Marriage is a good gift and a terrible God. Most of my grief in my teenage years and even into my 20s came from giving more of my heart to my future marriage than to God. It's easy to anchor our hope and happiness in a wife or husband and to define our growth, maturity, and worth by our marital status. And when we worship love, romance, sex, or marriage, and not God, we welcome the pain and disappointment. If we are married in this life, it will only be for a brief moment, and we won't regret that brevity 10,000 years from now. We really won't. No one will say, I really wish I were married, much less, I really wish I'd been married five or ten more years. Those years will seem like seconds compared with all the gloriously, thoroughly happy time we will have after every marriage ends. We need to think about that as we weigh the intensity of our desperation to have it now. We need to ask if we have made marriage a qualification for a happy and meaningful life. Am I undone and miserable by the prospect of never being married? Do I think of myself as incomplete or insignificant as an unmarried believer? These questions might reveal red flags that warn us that marriage has become an idol. Brothers and sisters, you can desire and pray for marriage. And may God be merciful and grant you the desires of your heart if he so pleases. But even if he doesn't, he's still good. Even if he doesn't, he's still good. He's still going to be faithful to you, and he promises to provide you with what you need to follow Jesus in this life. Jesus and Jesus alone will be enough. Back to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth heeds Naomi's counsel. And as she takes this risky move to be really in Boaz's quarters here, And keep in mind here, in the middle of the night, Boaz is suddenly awakened. The text says, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? All right, just an honest confession time. What are you like when you suddenly get woken up in the middle of the night? Okay? Be honest. Raise your hand if you're pleasant. You're smiling. Mark's pleasant. Smiling. You're in a great mood. You're just blessed in the middle of the night for being awoken suddenly. Now raise your hand if you're practically a grizzly bear. You get a little gnarly and angry, maybe a little crazy. You say and do things that the next morning you cannot believe you said or did. Well, just imagine what Boaz was going through. I've been working all day. I just had this great meal. I'm going to sleep like a bear. And then all of a sudden, whoa, what is this image in the dark? I mean, what would you do if you were just clocked out, and then all of a sudden, you're like, man, what is that noise? And oh my goodness, who are you? And what are you doing in my house? And why did you take my blanket away? My feet are cold. 
And that's what happened. His feet are cold. Give me my blanket back. I remember one time I thought a burglar was trying to get into our house. And in the middle of the night, I grabbed a pillow and I was walking towards the door. And Julie goes, what are you doing with a pillow? Going to give him a nap? Well, you do weird stuff like that. Nonetheless, Boaz calls out, and Ruth responds. He's wiping the eye boogers out of his eyes. He's trying to see in the dark. Perhaps he's got some candle he could light to see better. Then all of a sudden, he sees her. He sees Ruth. She's pretty. She looks more beautiful than really she had ever looked before. Oh, and man, she smells good. He begins to smell amongst his male musk after working on the threshing floor all night and realizing there is a woman in this room, and she smells real good. This sweet-smelling aroma of ointment or perfume begins radiating off her presence. Her hair smells good. Her clothing smells good. His, ascent, his senses are awakened more and more. And boy, he is wide awake now. And as Boaz gathers his thoughts and looks into her eyes, Ruth responds in verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth's language might be odd to us, but it would not have been odd to him. She's expressing her desire to be married to him. When she says, spread your wings over your servant, it's not that Boaz was like some angelic creature. No, it's poetic language used elsewhere in the scriptures that speaks of the covenant bond of marriage. We see that clearly in Ezekiel 16 verse 8 where God uses this language about himself in calling an adulterer Israel to stop committing spiritual adultery with idols and the nations and be faithful to me. I'm your husband. You belong to me. I have covered you. Here's what he says, Ezekiel 16, 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So how does Boaz respond? Does he reject her? Does he sinfully take advantage of her in the middle of the night? and use her for his own pleasure? Or does Boaz continue to show that he's a man's man according to God's definition of a man? As odd as this plan seems to us, God is still working in and through and around Naomi's risky plan. God is working in and through around Ruth's humble and vulnerable trust. But what about Boaz? Which leads to point number three. God is also working through Boaz's self-restraining and redeeming love for Ruth. Look with me at verses 10 to 15. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. 
you have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city. In verses 10 and 11, Boaz lavishes Ruth with affirmation, comfort, and assurance of his love for her. Let me just say that again. Boaz lavishes Ruth with affirmation, comfort, and assurance of his love for her. And husbands, this is a good time to think through this. What we see modeled by Boaz towards his future bride should be increasingly growing in our love for our wives. Notice this. He affirms her love and her desire to be married to him by blessing her. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. He's praying God's blessing over her and celebrating her, championing her because she's a woman who is worthy to be praised. Boaz then comforts her by telling her, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Husbands, if your wives are ever afraid of a circumstance, you can't be their savior, but boy, you can be used of God to remind them of the promises of God. Honey, don't be afraid. The Lord is with us. Don't be afraid. The Lord is guiding us. Like a godly man who cares for any sister in Christ, be it his wife, sister, daughter, mother, mother-in-law, or fellow church member, Boaz comforts her and calms her fears and anxieties down. Friends, Ruth would have felt vulnerable. She's a former Moabite, widowed, young, good-looking, walking through the middle of the night with a bunch of creepy men that could take advantage of her. And she is vulnerable before this man. And Boaz could take advantage of her if he's not the right kind of man she should be with. But Boaz does the opposite, right? Don't be afraid. He's reiterating to her, God is going to take care of you, whether I'm the Redeemer or someone else. And then Boaz reassures her. He reassures her that he too is desirous to be her Redeemer. In other words, he doesn't leave Ruth hanging. He looks at that young lady, that young woman, and says, I want you to be my wife. I love you too. He tells Ruth that she is not only redeemable, but that she is also desirable to him. And he expresses that by double-clicking on what he has seen from the very beginning, and really even what all the guys in the town have noticed about her. 
They are all talking about her virtuous, hardworking, praiseworthy reputation that is deeply attractive to him. Or some of us might say in Christian circles, man, her godliness is hot, or vice versa. That's how Christians will talk. They might not be focused on the physical as the end-all, be-all, but boy, when they see godliness, it's attractive. And it's not only him who has noticed it, but Boaz is saying everybody's noticing. You're one of a kind. Listen, do you see what's going on in Ruth 3? In Naomi's eyes, she conveyed to Ruth that Boaz was a good thing she can't let go. And now in Boaz's eyes, Ruth is a woman that he doesn't want to let go either. What do we have here in Ruth chapter 3? We have an ancient biblical example of what Percy Sledge made popular in his music. When a man meets a woman, the Bible is not embarrassed to talk about real human relationships. Friends, romance is in the air. It's getting steamy hot in Ruth chapter 3. It's midnight. They're all alone. A beautiful and attractive, sweet-smelling and godly woman has made her heart known to a single, older, God-fearing man. And that man looks into her eyes with a burning passion in his heart, and he wants to marry that woman. Now, you might think, is this where he like pulls out the red rose? Going to lay it on thick, smooch style? No, actually, something very different happens. We should pay attention to it. Boaz all of a sudden pumps the brakes. He calls time out on the romantic moment. By his actions and his words, Boaz shows us how he's thinking about this potential temptation. And he does what Jesus would call us to do as well. He resists the temptation to sin. He shows self-control and self-restraint because he wants to obey the Lord. Listen, this is like Christianity 101 stuff. We need to go back to the basics. As I prayed in my pastoral prayer, self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. We cannot control ourselves apart from God filling us by his strength. Notice what Boaz is doing. He's not living by his hormones. He's not living by his emotions. He's not living even by his sex drive. His conscience and his knowledge of God's word grips him in the middle of the night, and he knows he cannot redeem Ruth just yet. He knows that he cannot act or make love or behave in a way that a married man can with a wife. You know why Boaz stopped the moment? He knew that God was watching. God was there. Friends, any time you are in a temptation to cross boundaries that God forbids, begin cultivating daily the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Friends, that needs to be when you wake up in the morning, not in the heat of the moment. What was the promise that God's given us in his word? No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You see, Boaz in this moment realizes, wait a minute, not only would it be wrong to act on our desires towards one another, but according to verse 12, there's a redeemer closer in proximity and in priority than him. Why does that even matter though? Well, the benefits derived from functioning as a kinsman redeemer required that a sequence of priorities, in other words, proper steps, due process, first things first had to happen. Closer relatives were given the opportunity to exercise that redemption right first. So in this situation, Boaz has knowledge that a nearer kinsman redeemer to Elimelech has priority and claim over the redemption estate of Naomi and of Ruth. And he realizes, as much as I want you, I don't want to disobey God. As much as I want to be married to you, God's word says we have to go through a process and wait upon his will to be revealed. Boaz pauses the romantic pursuit of marriage, and Ruth and Boaz... They have to wait. They have to wait on what God reveals through Boaz's man-to-man, direct and respectful conversation with that nearer redeemer later that day. In chapter 4, I would encourage you to come back next week as we conclude the book of Ruth to find out how that conversation went. Drum roll, please. You know, whatever. It's sweet. It's great. It's wonderful. But you know where Ruth chapter 3 ends? They have to wait. We have to wait. Brothers and sisters, pray that God would give each one of us self-control. Pray that God would give each one of us self-control, self-restraint. Self-restraint, self-control to be able to say no, not now. That's enough. This could be with resisting sexual sin. This could be with how we use our money. This could be how we resist gluttony or use food as an idol that we hide behind when we're depressed. We could even be with our words, right? Proverbs 10, 19, for where there are many words, sin is not lacking, but a prudent person restrains his lips. Members of CCBC, a part of our discipling ministry to one another is teaching one another how to live lives full of self-control. Friends, have you ever noticed that in Titus chapter 2? Listen afresh. Titus 2, verses 3 to 6. Older women, likewise, that are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, verse 5, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And I love verse 6. Paul knew young men so well. Likewise, urged the younger men to be self-controlled. Brothers and sisters, what an amazing testimony here in Ruth chapter 3 of self-control. 
an amazing testimony of self-restraint, sexual purity, and waiting on God's best in marriage. Boaz and Ruth could have allowed their emotions and passions and hormones and sinful flesh and impatience to take over in the heat of the moment. I mean, think about it. Again, get back into the scene. It's dark. It's romantic. Two people together that love each other. They're attracted to each other. Friends, let's just all get honest. If I've had to get brutally challenged in this scene, if you and I were in that situation in the middle of the night with those passions, those attractions, those temptations, what would you and I have done? Would you and I have obeyed our sinful cravings that night? Or would we have remained above reproach? Boaz, like any godly leader, especially of a boyfriend or a husband, he takes the initiative in the relationship and says to Ruth, wait. Wait. Any man that forces a woman to do something against her will has to answer to Jesus for taking advantage of her. He could have done that. He's wealthy. He's got a godly reputation, and he could have easily lived a double life in the heat of a moment. What kind of self-control would it have taken for him to do that? Only by the grace of God. Boaz's desire to redeem and marry Ruth doesn't bypass his desire to obey the Lord. According to Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 25, the Levite marriage redemption rites meant that there had to be a process. There was a nearer redeemer than Boaz. So Boaz had to obey God before he could redeem Ruth. Friends, we can all learn something from Boaz and Ruth's example, right? Boaz is a man of his word. He promises her, Ruth, you're going to be taken care of. Whether I'm the redeemer or another man is, God's going to redeem you. Secondly, he abundantly blesses Ruth and Naomi with more barley. In other words, he's already trying to impress his future mother-in-law. Hey, why don't you take on just six all more bundles of steak and barley and whatever you would do, bacon, if your mother-in-law's into that, or, or if not, Jacob, you connected, maybe? Okay, never mind. Make this go. He wants to win this girl. He wants to win the girl's mom. And, of course, she's been paying attention for a, quite a while. Friends, this is a wonderful example of letting God write your love story. This is a wonderful example of two people who love God and they yield their life they yield their desires. And listen, they're patiently waiting on God. We see a man and a woman honor the Lord by obeying the Lord. We see a man and a woman waiting on God in order to have God's best for their lives. And friends, we should do that too. We should wait and be patient for God's best in whatever he sees fit for our lives. Friends, God is showing us something amazing in Ruth 3, far greater 
than a romantic rendezvous that got a pause until next week. Friends, we're seeing a picture of God's amazing love for sinners like you and me. Friends, you have to read Ruth 3 in light of Ruth 2 and in Ruth 1. Go back to Ruth 1. Have you lost a loved one in death? God sent his son to this earth to die on a bloody cross for you. Have you lost a spouse because they committed adultery or abandoned you? God will never cheat on you. God will never desert you. Even though Israel was faithless, even though his church at times is faithless, Jesus is always faithful to his bride. Have you grown bitter and grumbling in unbelief because of the painful, frowning providence of God in your life? God sent his son to hang on a cross under the frowning providence of his wrath for sinners like us. Have you felt like God has abandoned you? Jesus hung on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that for you. He did that for me. Have you longed for marriage, but God hasn't given it to you? Jesus says, come to me and I'll be your husband. I will be your covenant-making and covenant-keeping head. My love will fill you where all other lovers will fail you. Have you been longing for friendship and companionship? Jesus says, come to me and I will be your best friend who will carry your burdens and sorrows. Have you longed for a secure and stable home, feeling aimless in your life? Jesus says, come to me and me and the Father will make our home with you. Have you committed sexual sin, premarital sex, pornography, physical adultery, emotional adultery? Jesus, in love, says, I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. I will wash you. I will cover you with the wings of my love and mercy. I will heal you. I will clothe you. I will restore you. I will redeem you. Have you been sexually sinned against? Rape abuse, adultery. If that's you, Jesus says, I will take you and make you my own. I will heal you. I will strengthen you. And I will restore you where sin has wounded you. To my non-Christian friend, do you think you're unlovable? You're too far gone for God to love you. If you do, you don't understand the gospel. You see, the bad news is we're dirty. We're unclean. We're naked. We're faithless. And we're full of shame and guilt. And all we deserve is God to turn his back on us. But in his great love, he sent Jesus to this earth to redeem a bride for himself. To save a bride that was once his enemy. An adulterer. An idolater. A bride, nothing beautiful to look at. And friends, it's those people, unworthy and undesirable people that Jesus came to make his bride. Christ, our Redeemer, hung on the cross. He died in our place, was forsaken so that we might be forgiven, crushed for our sins that we might be cherished for all eternity. He was abandoned by his own so that we might be adopted into his home. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Friends, one of the things that I think are hard for Christians to hear that grow up in church, especially they go to Christmas services and they'll hear stuff like God loves you and it just kind of falls flat because you've heard it too much, but it's not penetrating here anymore. Listen to C.S. Lewis and Martin Luther. C.S. Lewis once said, God loves us not because we're lovable, but because he is love. Not because he needs to receive, but because he delights to give. Luther says, God doesn't love us because of our worth. We are of worth because God loves us. You see the difference? We don't have to dress up, make up, and look beautiful for God to love us. He saw us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, naked, faithless, adulterous at heart. And he says, you come here to me and I will cover you and I will make you beautiful and I will make you worthy. His love makes us worthy, not our love. That gets it backwards. That's the legalist side. God's grace in Christ makes us lovely to look at because of what Christ has done for us. So how does this end? Ruth gets home. She's got a massive bundle of barley on her back. But this time there's a really giddy smile on her face. She drops the barley down. Her heart's probably right, rushing pretty rapidly because she's had to get on home and she's like super excited. But then Naomi gives a word of counsel to Ruth that echoes the same counsel Boaz gave her. Look at verse 18. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Friends, Naomi instructs Ruth to confidently wait on Boaz's leadership. And in doing so, Ruth is also confidently waiting on God's plan to unfold for her. Beloved, what are you waiting on God to do next in your life? How are you doing with waiting on God to act on your behalf? Friends, whatever it is, God is always working for the good of those who wait for him. One act of obedience at a time. Friends, in the life of a Christian, Jesus assures us, comforts us, and covers us with his love. Behind the dark curtain of disaster, disappointment, and death, behind every form of unjust criticism, every form of relationship conflict, every kind of church hurt, every form of sinister slander said about you, even behind an unhappy marriage, even behind unwanted singleness, even behind the unknown of your future and my future, God's redeeming love is beaming behind the curtain. Friends, he doesn't lead us to sin and God doesn't take pleasure in evil that God can use and work in and through anything in our life to redeem for our good. Those faithful friends that you're so glad you have today, those are gifts of God's redeeming love. Those faithful Christians who remind you of God's word exactly when you need it, they are gifts 
from God's redeeming love. The people who tell you all the time, wait upon the Lord, obey the Lord. God is with you, God is for you. Friends, those are not friends to take for granted. They are gifts from our redeeming, loving God. Friends, if you've got a godly example in a man or a woman that models self-control, self-restraint in their words, in their passions, with their money, in all their relationships, they are gifts, redeeming love gifts from God. And friends, whatever people God puts in our life, they're only lovely, they're only worthy because he has made them lovely and he has made them worthy. God in Jesus Christ, he is lovely. He is worthy. Friends, when God puts people in your life to lead you and guide you, and he puts those same people in your life to remind you to wait, do you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have seen your love radiating in and through and around this tragic but yet slowly more beautiful story in the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Lord, we pray for all those who heard today would take something of the example of how you have made Boaz and Ruth worthy and lovely by your grace. Lord, we also pray for healing to those who have not exercised self-control, as we all have sinned. And Lord, we do pray that your redeeming love would be our song and would be our hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.